The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Yeah, if you uh, want to turn your Bibles to John chapter 6, <clears throat> we're going to be starting this mammoth chapter today. It's a complex chapter. It's full of incredible truths that overlap one another. Um, for those of you who are fairly new, we began a series in John's Gospel uh, last year in June, and we went uh, from June to October. We uh, got, got, to, got to around about the end of John chapter 5. Um, and so uh, we, we worked through that, worked through those first five chapters of John for uh, those five months. Is this still feeding back? Do I need to show? It's all good? It's all good? Okay, sweet. Okay, sorry. I, I feel like I can hear it, but that's all good. Not just me. I've just got ringing in my ears. It's all good. So, um, going through, we've been going through John's Gospel last year for about five months. We got through the first five chapters of John's Gospel. And then we took a bit of a break. We um, did a, a couple of other series, uh, went to Christmas, went to Psalms. And then now we're back again in John's Gospel, back again looking um, at John chapter 6. And... Um, we don't have really time to recap the entire of John chapters 1 to 5 because um, that would just take us another five months, basically. Um, but uh, what I will point us to is John's purpose for writing this gospel, which he gives to us in John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. He says there, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in, his, in this book. So Jesus did other things as well. But these are written, these signs are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. In other words, John curated the miraculous deeds that Jesus performed that we find in his gospel into this selection so that those who would read about it, his purpose, his goal, is that anybody who was reading John's curated selection of the signs and wonders that Jesus did, that they would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the hero that they'd all been waiting for. They would believe that he is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, they would have life. Life to the full. Not just, not just oxygen in your lungs, but enriched life. Life as it was meant to be, life that is not tainted by the fear of death. So when you're reading through John's Gospel, any time you, you come, up, uh, come, come up to these words like belief and life, you need to circle them, you need to underline them. If you're in the habit of using a highlighter, highlight those words, because these are the mega themes of this Gospel, belief and life. They are like the breadcrumbs leading to the goal of this book. And we've seen these mega themes pop up um, at least once every chapter throughout John, John 1 to 5. We see, uh, I'll just give you a bit of a selection. In John chapter 1, in verse 4, so right off the bat, John says that in Jesus was life, and the life, uh, and the life was the light of men, so he was the light of mankind. He was the life of those light of men. In John chapter 2, Jesus turned water into wine. And we're told there that he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. It's the first sign that Jesus performed. His disciples believed in him. Also in chapter 2, 
Jesus was performing many signs and wonders, and many people believed in his name. In John chapter 3, Jesus famously tells the Pharisee Nicodemus, For God so loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. We see belief and life coming together rarely in this, in this um, single verse. In John chapter 4, it says that many Samaritans believed in Jesus because they heard Jesus' words. They came to know that, they came to believe that he really is the Savior of the world. And then in John chapter 5, um, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. And it gets Jesus into a whole lot of hot water. And he enters this long discourse with the Jews about belief and life. And he says that anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. These are the mega themes of John's gospel, belief and life. And sometimes you'll see unbelief, sometimes you'll see death, and these need to be highlighted and looked at because these are the breadcrumbs that John is uh, leaving for, for us to, to follow his, his purpose in this gospel. This is what he wants us to pay attention to. But one of the things that we, one of the questions we should ask is what does it mean to believe? Like, is it just intellectual assent? Is it just like a, a change of mind? Is it just like a, a, a just, just an activity solely of our minds? Is it something that we've got to have in our mind? Or is belief open to our interpretation? We can kind of, you know, say whatever we want, do whatever we want, as long as we just kind of believe in our hearts. This is just something that we do with our minds or our hearts. Well, as we come to John chapter 6, we, we get somewhat of an answer. According to this chapter, John chapter 6, belief is fundamentally a complete orientation of your entire life around Jesus that touches everything and spares nothing in your life, both inside and out, in our minds, in our hearts, in our wills, in our hands, our whole lives. Belief in Jesus is a comprehensive, every single part of life activity. And this, this truth of what John teaches us about what it means to believe in Jesus, it begins with this miracle at the beginning of John chapter 6 where Jesus feeds 5,000 people. Today's sermon really is just a bit of an introduction to John chapter 6, just to get our heads into gear for this uh, chapter moving forward. And then the, the rest of John chapter 6 over the coming next few weeks is going to show us the radical depths that belief takes us to. So let's pray, let's commit this time into God's hand, and then uh, we'll get into this text. Lord God, we know that your word contains wisdom. Wisdom for us. Lord, your word is not just wisdom with lots of good ideas and not just, not just lots of good things to do, but it is ultimately perfect wisdom because it ultimately points towards your son, Jesus. And, and your word tells us, Lord, that you choose the, the foolish things of this world to shame the strong, to shame the mighty. 
that your word is wisdom, but it's folly to those who are perishing. That, that you use weak vessels to display your strength. Lord, we are weak vessels. We're not coming to your word this morning as people who have made it, as people who have got it all together, as people who have ticked all the boxes and scored all the goals and have got a good track record. We come to you, Lord, as the people who are opposite to that. And so, Lord, by your grace, would you reveal to us in your word your, your son, the beauty of Jesus. Would you point us towards him more and more than we have ever experienced, Lord? May we understand this morning, Lord, just how wonderful it is that you sent your son to die for us and to rise again and to ascend to the right hand of the Father to reign forevermore, that you're our king, you're our Lord, you're our saviour, you're our friend and our brother, Jesus. We thank you that all these things are totally true. Amen. One of the uh, super defining moments of my life was when my daughter Noah was born. Um, She's our first child, and when she was born, her big blue baby eyes were wide and bright and were looking around at everything in the room, making eye contact with absolutely everybody she could see. It was an absolute trip. Even the midwife was holding her at one stage and was a little bit uncomfortable with how just directly Noah was staring into her soul. Just, she was like, oh, you're really looking at me, aren't you? And I had this, like... This, this few hours that, that morning, she was born in like the very early hours of the morning, and a few hours, this is the sun rose, where I got to hold her, and she slept in my, in my arms, and everything changed. My life was never the same again. It was a radical change in my identity. Not just in the responsibilities that I now had as a father, but as a radical change in my identity. It wasn't just that I was a dad, I now was dad. It wasn't just that I was a father, but there was now someone in this world who would refer to me only as dad. I had a new identity. You see, the biggest moments in our lives not only have a dramatic uh, impact on the trajectory of our lives, but also on our identity. For better or for worse, who we are can be altered in a moment. What was an identity-shaping moment in your life? It might have been something really wonderful, maybe something that you gained that you'd never had before. It might have been something really horrible. Maybe you lost something or someone that you never thought you could live without. If you go back to the Old Testament, one of the most important identity-shaping moments in the history of Israel was the Exodus, the moment where God saved his people through Moses from slavery in Egypt. Before they were slaves, uh, the nation of Israel was just a little family, a reasonably big family, and they were, they were a nomadic people, they were quite prosperous. But then... 
they became slaves in Egypt. They moved to Egypt. They, were, they multiplied. They were enslaved by the pharaohs there. And for four centuries, there was slavery, oppression, hardships, forced labor, and genocide. And it had basically shaped this nation of people into a weak, untrusting, disunified, confused people without hope. And when they were saved out of slavery in Egypt, they didn't automatically become free people in their hearts. You can take the slave out of Egypt, but it's a much bigger process to take Egypt out of the slave, out of the heart of the slave. If you read their history as they walked through the desert after they were set free, you see over and over again that they were still acting like slaves. They often at times yearn to be back in Egypt to be with their slave masters. Sure, they killed us. Sure, we were disposable to them. Sure, they beat us. Sure, we worked for nothing. But at least they fed us. They were still under the thumb of the Egyptians. I once heard a preacher say it like this, that it took 40 years in the desert for God to teach the people of Israel to stop being slaves to Egypt, but rather be children of God. This was their identity-forming moment. This became, and, and that became one of the most defining things for them, that they were the people of God, children of God. Salvation was their reputation. If you remember, when they enter into the promised land, the spies come across that, that lady Rahab, and she says, no introduction is necessary here, guys. We know exactly who you are. We know that God dried up the, the Red Sea before you, and we're all pretty terrified about that. We're all really terrified that you are knocking down the front door. Salvation was their identity as they related to God. When you, when you read through the Old Testament, you see time and time again that God refers to his people. He, he talks to them. He says, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from slavery in Egypt. This was their identity. They were the ones who had been saved by God. And the reason why I say all of that is because the Exodus really forms the backdrop to John chapter 6. The pattern that we see of God rescuing his people out of slavery in Egypt by his grace, not because they were a prosperous nation, not because they had something to offer, not because that nation showed great potential, but because of his grace and because of his desire, God's desire to make his glory known in the nation of Israel and, to, and through them to all the nations of the world. It was by his grace that he chose to save Israel. And that there becomes the blueprint for what we see in John chapter 6, with this, beginning with this miracle of Jesus feeding 5,000 people. Now what's quite special about this miracle is that this miracle is the only sign that Jesus performed that is recorded in all four Gospels. If you remember, every single one of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each one of them writes with a different perspective and a different purpose and a different plan in mind. They're not all following the same chronolo chronological order as we might prefer as you know, 21st century Western people. They follow in a different order. An order that is even different to each one of them. John is quite different to each of them. And in this particular miracle, when you read it across all four Gospels, they're all the same but slightly different. And John picks up a couple of things that are going on here in this particular story. And these things are really important for John's overall purpose. 
You see, John is always operating at more than one level. People often say about the Gospel of John that it is shallow enough to a to- for a toddler to splash around in, and it is deep enough for, a, for an elephant to be completely submerged, both at the same time. If you're a brand new Christian, or if you're here and you're not even a Christian, you should read John's Gospel. It's a very easy thing to read. And then you can also read it, if you've, you're sitting here and you're like, I've read the Gospel of John at least 100 times now, read it again because you're going to get something else out of it. it. It's a well that has no bottom to it. And he's always operating at more than one level. And this miracle is, is just the same as that. He's telling us that something really important is going on here. It's not just a display of Jesus' power. This is uh, something that is being communicated here about what kind of Messiah Jesus is, what kind of king that Jesus is, and what does it mean to follow him. This is what leads us into this mega chapter. The the feeding of the 5,000 is not an isolated incident. It's not just a, hey, let me show you how cool the, the cool things are that Jesus did. It's an introduction to a bigger story. So let's get into it. Verse 1 says, After this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. Now, that after this is really quite vague. Like if you said, let's get lunch after this, that would mean half an hour to an hour of time. Uh, But this after this is actually quite a lot longer. We're going to find out in just a few verses that this is around the time of the Passover. But if you go back to chapter 5, that that chapter was around the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, They call it the Feast. And there's at least six months in between the Feast of Tabernacles and uh, and the Passover festival that is celebrated by the Israelites. Furthermore, they're in Galilee, whereas in John chapter 5, they're in Jerusalem, which is about 150 kilometers away. So from the last verse of John chapter 5, in between the last verse of John chapter 5 and the first verse of John chapter 6, about around six months and just short of 150 kilometers has been passed between here and there. So there's a lot of history that John's has kind of stepped over. Now we might think, I would love to know what happened in there. I would love to know what happened in that six months, but for John's purpose, this is the way that he is writing this. It's a, it's a big after this. Lots of travel, lots of time, and we can just most likely assume lots of miracles as well. So Jesus is back up north in Galilee, and verse 2 tells us that a huge crowd was following him. Now we're going to get into the crowd in a little bit more detail next week, but this is, as far as I can tell, uh, the first time that huge crowds have been mentioned in John's Gospel. So far it's really just been his disciples and a few other close followers with him. And this crowd was 5,000 men. But also, we know that women were there, and we can assume that we know that the children were there as well. And so uh, it's not too much of a stretch to, to think that there was, this was anywhere between 15 to 20, maybe 25,000 people. Now, I actually Googled this week, what does 20,000 people look like? I've got that picture up on the screen. That's what 20,000 people looks like. There's a website you can go to where it just shows you pictures of what different size groups of people look like. This is what five people look like. This is what 50 people look like. And it goes all the way up to, I think, NASCAR is like the biggest crowds that it can be drawn anywhere. This is what like 165,000 people look like. That's what 20,000 people looks like. That's crazy, right? That's the O2 Arena in London. They're playing tennis there. That's a lot of people. Just stare at that for a second. That's how many people we can assume, maybe give or take a few thousand, 
That's how many people were there with Jesus at the beginning of John chapter 6. But it's not just the size of the crowd that John is interested in. It's their motivation to be there. That's what he mentions. That's what he really wants to draw out. He tells us that this crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. Now that stands out because motivation in following Jesus, the right kind of motivation for following Jesus, has already been brought up a couple of times in John's Gospel. So if you go back to John chapter 2, during the first Passover festival that is recorded in Jerusalem, it says that many people believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all. Now we looked at that last time, but it looks like people are believing in Jesus, but, didn't, but Jesus didn't trust in their belief. This is a big hint to us that we can't just import whatever definition we want into that word belief. We've got to let, if we're being called to believe in Jesus by God's word, we've got to let God's word teach us what it means to believe. Then again in chapter 4, motivation is under question. A royal official asked Jesus to heal his son. Jesus replied, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. It's somewhat of a rebuke for coming to Jesus on our own terms. Now, here, the crowds are said to be following Jesus because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. They've seen the signs that Jesus can do and they're following him. Maybe they want to see more signs. Maybe it's particularly interesting for them, entertaining for them. Maybe it most likely is drawing them towards a greater reality of who Jesus is quite likely many of them needed healing. Or many of them loved someone who needed healing and they were following Jesus because of that in the hope that they would be healed. And we can't fault them for doing this, can we? Like, if we were there and we knew that Jesus was in town and he could heal, we'd be following him too. We'd be seeking after him. If your child was sick to the point of death, you would move heaven and earth to get to Jesus if you thought that he could do something. So I don't think that this is a scathing criticism of these people. It seems to me that John is more interested in highlighting how much better Jesus is than anything we can imagine. Whatever your expectations are of Jesus, who he is, who he really is, is always infinitely better. One of the traps that we can fall into is having tiny, minuscule and puny motivations in following Jesus. We might come to Jesus thinking he's going to be a band-aid. He's going to sort some kind of problem out for my life. He's going to solve some particular issue in my life. I'm following Jesus because I want this for him. And maybe we can identify what that is in our hearts by simply asking the question, what loss of something would cause us to stop following Jesus. Whatever your answer is there is most likely the, a bit of a hint as to why you're following him. We can have these puny, minuscule, tiny motivations in following Jesus and what the Bible calls us to is to see the, the far greater reality that Jesus is so much better than we can ever, ever imagine. To come to Jesus 
expecting him that he is going to uh, just fix a issue in our lives, just sort something out in our lives. This is why I'm following him. That is to reduce Jesus. Uh, it's a massive reduction of his purposes on earth. I googled this week, what is the most expensive diamond on earth? And it turns out a number of the most expensive gems and rubies and diamonds are all in possession of the English royal family and all embedded into the, the various crowns and scepters. To reduce Jesus down to something that he can do for me is like taking the, the, the royal crown of King Charles and his scepter to scoop leaves out of your pool. That's, that's what it's kind of like to use the most amazing thing for one task. No, Jesus is glorious and beautiful and wonderful. He is King of kings, Lord of lords, and there is, there is no limit to anything that he can do. If we're coming to Jesus thinking, oh, I'm following Jesus because, you know, there's just this one thing I need him to do for me and I'm just kind of waiting on that, or I've received that, I'm just kind of hanging on to him because I've got that. Jesus is so much bigger than our expectations. That's going to be, that's, I'm moving into next week a bit, that's more so for next week. Verse 3 is really important. It says that Jesus went up on a mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now, what I think we should hear when we read verse 3 is kind of like uh, a gun being loaded because that's what's, that's what's happening here. There's something big is about to happen. It's like, it's, it's, verse 3 is like the, the cocking sound of a, of a gun, whatever that comes to mind for you. It's like, this is preparing us for something big because mountains are, are virtually synonymous with some of the biggest events in Israel's history. Think of Abraham up Mount Moriah, who was just about to sacrifice his son Isaac, but then at the very last moment, God stepped in and provided the sacrifice. Or think of Moses up Mount Sinai, receiving the Ten Commandments. Think of Elijah up on Mount Carmel, uh, against the prophets of Baal, who had turned almost all of Israel away from Yahweh. Think of Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7 to or going up the mountain to be transfigured before Peter and James and John. When Jesus goes up a mountain in the Gospels, we know that something big is about to take place. And what makes this even more significant is the fact that Jesus sat down, which means Jesus is about to teach. Whenever a, a rabbi would sit down, his followers would gather around him. Jesus is about to start teaching. And time and time again, we see Jesus doing this, sitting down to teach. In Mark chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Again, he began to teach by the sea, and a very large crowd gathered around him. So he got into a boat on the sea and sat down while the crowd was by the sea on the shore. Matthew chapter 13, verse 2, and Luke chapter 5, verse 3, both say the same thing. In Luke chapter 4, verse 20, it says, when, when Jesus taught in the synagogue, it says that he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and then sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. And from there he began to teach. The kingdom of God is at hand. Mark 26, verse 55 says, At that time Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I used to sit teaching in the temple and you didn't arrest me. 
Mark chapter 9, verse 35. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. And in John chapter 8, verse 2, At dawn, he went to the temple again, and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. Jesus is up on a mountain. Something big is going to take place. Jesus is sitting down. He's about to start teaching. That's the meaning of that. So if he's sitting down to perform this miracle, this tells us this miracle is not just a display of his power. It's more than just cool tricks and full bellies, as cool as that is. This is a teaching moment. Jesus is using this moment to teach his disciples something important about his identity, about what kind of king he is. And this teaching gets underway in verse 4, where John says, Now the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. Now, this is the second of three of the Jewish, of the Jewish Passovers that were recorded uh, in John's Gospel. Three, this is what gives us kind of the, the understanding that, uh, of Jesus' three-year ministry. The Jewish Passover was, back then, and still is for many people today, uh, the very high point of the Jewish calendar. It's the meal that the Israelites ate the night before Egypt finally let them go. And because the Passover was near, Jesus starts to feed the people with bread. He asks Philip this question, where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? Now, in his question there to Philip, there's almost a hint of the same question that Moses asked God when they were out in the desert. They had crossed over the Red Sea. They were out in the desert. The people were getting hungry. They needed to eat. And Moses comes to God in Numbers eleven thirteen and asks God, where can I get meat to give all these people? Jesus is asking Philip a very similar question. Where will we buy food? Where will we buy bread for these people? Now, if we're wondering why Jesus asked Philip and not one of the other disciples, it could be because Philip was from the region And so it makes sense to ask the local guy where the nearest bakeries are. But before we get to Philip's response, which we're going to look at next week, John adds one more note in verse 6. He says, Jesus asked this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. And that's what we're going to get to in our text today. We're going to stop there before we actually get to the miracle. And the reason why is because I think this can't be... We don't have time to look at the entire miracle as it is. And it can't be separated from what's to come when they, when they come across Jesus walking on water. There's, there's something bigger going on. See, Jesus, this is more than just Jesus solving a catering problem. He's testing Philip. He's testing Philip. He's asking him, and he's, he's testing the other disciples as well, are they going to understand who Jesus really is? You see, Jesus is about to show them who he really is. It says Jesus himself knew what he was going to do. And that is mega important. Jesus himself knew what he was going to do. Passover was near. Jesus has a plan. 
And we've seen Jesus do this already in John's Gospel. If you have, in fact, if you just go back to chapter 5, which we, we looked at last October, we remember back then that Jesus performed this miracle, the last miracle he did actually that we have record of, uh, where he healed the disabled man at the pool of Beth- Bethesda. And when Jesus heals this man, it's on the Sabbath, and he gets into a whole lot of trouble because he healed on the Sabbath. It was from that moment that the Jews began to persecute him. But the thing was, and we picked up on this last October, Jesus could have avoided trouble if he wanted to. You see, he healed this man on the Sabbath. That man had been disabled for 38 years. What is one more day? Like, he could have come and healed that man the next day and not caused any, drawn any attention to himself, and he would have been fine. But he doesn't. He heals him on the Sabbath. And more than that, he tells the man to pick up his mat and walk off, walk away. Now, if Jesus didn't do that, if Jesus actually said, leave your mat behind, then we probably would have preached something along the lines of, you know, you've know, you got to leave, those, leave the past behind or something like that. He doesn't do that. He says, no, pick up your mat and carry it. And that would have stood out. That man would have been the only person carrying his mat that day because it was, according to the, to the interpretation of the Sabbath laws by the Pharisees and the Jews, that was illegal. You weren't allowed to carry your mat on the Sabbath. So Jesus says, don't forget your mat. I want you to stand out. So the man's carrying the mat, and the the Jews and the Pharisees, they get really upset about this. And they say, where is the man that healed you? And the guy has no idea who healed him. So Jesus is like, rats, I I really need some attention about this. So he goes over and finds the guy. He's like, hey, it was me. And then the guy goes back to the Pharisees, and he says, hey, I... I found this is the guy who healed me. And then they had this huge long dialogue about the Sabbath, and that's where Jesus gets into trouble. It's like Jesus wants to be in trouble from them. He wants them to start persecuting him. He, he, He has a purpose, he has a plan. His plan is the cross. His plan is always the cross. He's on his way to the cross, always in John's gospel. Did Jesus have a plan back then? Yes. Does Jesus have a plan in, in chapter 6? Absolutely. Jesus himself knew what he was going to do. He is the sovereign God of the universe, the word that was with God and was God and became flesh. He had a plan in this moment. He wasn't just responding to a catering crisis. He was knocking down the first domino in a whole row of dominoes that would continue all the way through John chapter 6. Jesus was, he had this plan. He knew what he was going to do. He was going to feed these 20,000 people or so. And then that meal is going to lead to a huge discussion, a huge discussion the next day that takes up basically the entire of John 6, a huge discussion about the way that Moses fed the people in the desert after they left Egypt. And he's going to tell them, Jesus is going to tell these people, I'm here to feed you. I am the prophet like Moses that you're expecting, and I'm going to feed you with the true bread from heaven. I am the bread of life. You need to eat me. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, Jesus is going to say. And just so you know, that's the bottom of belief. Receiving Jesus at that level and degree. Jesus himself knew what he was going to do. And by connecting this to the Passover, I think that what John is telling us, this is no simple act of feeding 20,000 people, as wonderful and impressive and mind-blowing as that is. This miracle points towards Jesus inaugurating a new 
Exodus. He's coming to save the slaves again. But not from Egypt, from sin. In the same way that God's people followed Moses out of slavery in Egypt, Jesus saves us from slavery to sin. You see, before we know Christ, we are slaves to sin. If you're, not, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you will not agree with me on that. But that's the truth that the Bible teaches. If you, before we know Jesus, we are slaves to sin. It's not just that we've committed sins, but we are slaves to sin. That is our identity. We are born into sin, born under slavery. We're not sinners because we have sinned. We sin because we are sinners. And that is what is true of every single person on earth. And that means that we are bound to do what our sinful nature tells us to do. In the same way that the Israelites were under the thumb of Egypt and had no hope of ever saving themselves, humanity's condition is the same. We are under sin and therefore we must face the wrath of God. He is a just God. He would not be God if he did not bring justice against all sin, against all the sins that were committed against us and against all the sins that have been committed by us. And he is a wrathful God. He could not tell us that he loved us and if he did not have wrath towards sin. But God sent his son to inaugurate a new exodus, a new way out of slavery to sin. He came to give us a new identity in him. You see, the gospel is not just about the forgiveness of sin, as fantastic as that is, but it's about freedom from sin and the new identity that we, received, that we receive in Jesus Christ. In the same way that Israel had to stop thinking of themselves as slaves to Egypt, but rather as the children of God, the chosen people of God, we need to be led away from sin and be shown by Jesus Christ that he is the one who has come to kick down the doors of sin. We are no longer under sin, which used to rule over us. We are the true children of God. Before we know Jesus, sin rules over us. Sin calls the shots. Sin is in charge, and we are under the thumb of sin, destined to believe every lie of Satan, which is namely, God can never love you. God can never love you. God can never forgive you. God needs some space from you right now. He's had enough of you. God can never forgive all that you've done. That's the lie of Satan. It's that we are basically, our case is hopeless. And it's far safer, safer for us just to go back to Egypt. It's far safer for us just to kind of live the way that we used to live. But Jesus is the king who knocks down the doors of our captivity. Jesus is the king who takes charge. God is the one who grabs hold of us and yanks us out of his slavery. And sin loses all of its power. How does Jesus do this? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. He, that's God, made the one, that's Jesus, who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, if that's not a spectacular identity change, I don't know what is. 
Because Paul could have written there, we might have the righteousness of God, and that would be spectacular. But he actually uses this very strong word, to become, that we might become the righteousness of God. That our identity is so fundamentally changed by Jesus Christ that he imputes his righteousness, that God imputes the righteousness of Christ onto us. That our identity changes, that we don't, we're no longer slaves to sin. We are children of God. As much as, and if not actually more than, my daughter is my daughter and I'm her father, more than that, we are God's children. God made the one who did not know sin to be sin. Jesus became sin and then he went on the cross so that in him, not in anything else, but in him we might become the righteousness of God. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, your identity changes. You receive the righteousness of God. You become the righteousness of God. That's outrageous. I, I don't understand the, how to separate those two things. I don't, can't get my head around that stuff. It's just outrageous. Let's just receive it. Let's just accept that. That when God looks at you, he doesn't see, he doesn't, your value is not according to what you did last night. Your value is not according to what was done to you three years ago. Your value is not according to all the things that you have gained. Your value is not according to all the things that you've lost. Your value is according to the blood of Jesus Christ that was poured out for you. You are a child of God. That's the spectacular reality for every single Christian. By His grace, we have been saved. By His grace, we have been saved. He has forgiven us and made us his children. Not because of anything that we've done. We deserve God's wrath. We, deserve, we don't deserve to be forgiven. We don't deserve for God to even face us. We deserve his back. Not even that. We, we deserve his neglect. We deserve for him to turn his face away. But through Jesus Christ, God did the opposite to all those things. He turns his face towards us. We have his countenance. We have his attention. We have his love. We have his mercy. We have his kindness poured out on us. Sin has nothing to say to the countenance of Jesus. So maybe you're here this morning. You're a Christian, but you still feel like you're ruled by fear. Your life is a, is a mix of panic and drama. Jesus is saying, come out of Egypt. That's not who you are. Maybe you're ruled by lust and addiction. Jesus is saying, come out of Egypt. That's not you. Maybe you're ruled by the opinions of others and your fear of man cripples you to the point of inaction. That's not you. You're a child of God. Maybe you're ruled by the things that you've done in the past. Their memory comes back and haunts you and the dark clouds of despair and shame accumulate overhead. Friend, brother, 
sister, come out of Egypt. What identity are you clinging to that isn't from God? Is it suffocating you yet? Because it will. It will start to suffocate you and squeeze all your life out of you. How do we come out of Egypt? How, how are we no longer ruled by our sin? Get our eyes on the king who destroyed sin and death by taking on our sin, dying the death that we deserved and then rising to new life so that both sin and death were destroyed, sabotaged until the rest of the time until they're destroyed altogether. Look at the king who went to the cross on our behalf and know that by faith your sin went with him. It's no longer yours to bear. Take the historical reality of that truth, that Jesus has died and risen again and conquered death and set that in your hearts as the deepest reality of your identity. Your sin is no longer yours to bear. Enjoy being saved. Enjoy your new identity. Drink deep from that well. Whenever you feel like God could never love me, rebuke that sin. No, I'm united with Christ. What can separate me? Paul's got a list of things that he, he thinks about. Nothing, nothing can separate us from the union that we have with Christ. That is our identity. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcast free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.